Hi there, this is Watchin, and you are now listening to the I Choose the Ladder podcast, a podcast for Black women on the corporate climb. In this episode, you meet Vice President of Government Relations at J.P. Morgan and Chase, Nicole Elam. She serves as the Government Relations Manager for the Midwest. In this role, Nicole is the firm's primary liaison to state and local government officials and principal advocate on legislative and regulatory proposals in the region. Nicole brings over 14 years of experience in public policy. Before joining the firm, Nicole led the Government and External Affairs Strategy for ITT Educational Services, worked as a senior director at the government affairs firm Ice Miller Strategies and an attorney at Akin Gump Strauss Hauer and Feld LLP, focusing on congressional investigations, government enforcement actions, and complex litigation in Washington, D.C., Before law school, Nicole worked as communications director at the Black Leadership Forum and as a legislative assistant at the NAACP Washington Bureau. Nicole received a JD cum laude from from Howard University School of Law, where she was solicitations editor of the Law Review and a bachelor's of arts degree from DePaul University. I've had the good fortune of knowing Nicole for about 15 years now, and she's one of the reasons that I started the podcast, and I just appreciate how honest and open she is in this interview, so I hope you get a lot from it. So, Nicole, thank you for being on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I know you have a pretty busy, 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 busy week, um, as we just talked about, so um, really, really appreciate your time. Um, I know currently you work um, as a lobbyist, but before this amazing job that you have, do you remember what your first corporate, like, big girl job was? Yeah, so my my first corporate big girl job was working at a law firm in D.C., and I actually got that position through an internship, which, you know, anybody who has an opportunity to do an internship or a fellowship program, an analyst program, any of those types of rotational programs, I would say jump on it and take it. Um, because for me and for folks that I've seen now that I've been in the corporate world for 10 years, those programs really set you up for success. Um, they provide you a career pathway to move through the organization. Um, they provide intentional development opportunities. And so that internship for me, which was a summer associate position, really set me up for success um, when I entered the law firm. And so now I tell people to take advantage of those opportunities. I really encourage HR and different lines of business to recruit at HBCU schools so that there are more people who look like me who are entering these types of programs. Um, but, yeah, that was my first big girl job was as a, as a first-year associate at a law firm in Washington. And obviously you went to law school. Did you always know that you wanted to be a lawyer? And obviously you're not practicing law now. So, like, when did the law interest come about? I did. I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. It was one of those things for Halloween. I dressed up as an, as a lawyer, you know, which who knows what that really looks like. But I had a briefcase and glasses and, you know, a suit, and that's what I wanted to be. So I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. But what's changed is what I've done with my law degree. Um, that's definitely changed over the years as I got more engaged into actually the practice of law. Um, my interests changed, what I wanted to do changed, but I always knew that I, I wanted to be a lawyer. So I was very intentional about that. When I went to high school, I wanted to get good grades so that I could get a scholarship, so I could get into the right undergraduate program and um, the right law school. So I was very intentional because I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Got it. And do you know, like, where did that come from? Like, were your parents lawyers? Did you have a lawyer mentor? Or it just was something that was in you? I think it was just something that, you know, I wanted to do. I think growing up, um, it was, it was you wanted to be a lawyer or a doctor. And whether that was the Cosby show or whatever, I just feel like that was success, what success looked like in, in the black community for me. Um, and so, you know, a doctor and blood and math and science really didn't jump out at me, um, but, but being a lawyer did. I, I will also say, now that you asked that question, a lot of it also had to do probably with my father. Um, my father, his, his hero was Thurgood Marshall. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we heard a lot about him growing up. 
Um, my father didn't necessarily have us young, but he went into a kind of volition-driven technical program. And so, you know, I think if he had to do it all over again, he really wanted to do law school, but because he had a family to provide for, um, he kind of went the trade route. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that probably really did also shape me wanting to be a lawyer. Got it. And so we went to college together, people, um, and we but we went to a predominantly white institution. And for law school, you made a different choice in where you went. Um, what played into that decision? Yeah, it was a very strategic decision. So I went to a you know predominantly white institution for undergrad because of the resources and the opportunities um, that they that they had. It was you know described as the Ivy League of the Midwest, and so there were lots and lots of opportunities and exposure for undergrad. What I realized though, when it came to grad school, our law school for me, that I wanted to go to a place where I could come out and I could get a job. And so I could go to an Ivy League school where there would likely be a lot of competition, or I realized that if you went to a premier HBCU school, all of the top places were going to come and recruit. So as long as I was in the top 10% of my class, the top 10 in my class, I was almost guaranteed a job. And so I picked a, I picked a place strategic, strategically because I wanted to get a job, and I wanted to get a job at, at one of the top places. So I could have gone to, you know, a Georgetown or someplace else for law school. But, you know, the likelihood of me getting a great job, even if I was in the top percentage of my class, it was just going to be much better if I went to Howard. And how was where I chose where I wanted to go. Got it. And how was your experience different going to a PWI versus an HBCU? Right, because you're one of the few people that I know who actually has experienced both. Um, and in terms of culture and grooming you for cor corporate America, how is it different? Um, there's a, a lot of differences in terms of kind of respect for for yourself and respect for the black culture. You got a lot of that at an HBCU. Um, even the, you know, referring to each other as Mr. and Mrs., um, you did that at an HBCU school. And so I, I appreciated that. You kind of, I, I entered the workforce with a respect for who I was and a respect for my peers and a respect for leadership. And I got a lot of that from the HBCU school. Got it. I think what I got from a PWI is your ability to interact with people who don't look like you, don't talk like you. Um, I learned the appreciation of diversity of thought. You know, you, you fight against being the only at a PWI, but that means a lot because you're usually going to be the only when you enter the workforce. And those dynamics shift and change, and how you maneuver that um, and how you make sure that there's diversity at the table and diversity of thought at the table, I learned those types of skills because I was exposed to that at a PWI. So it wasn't a shock for me to enter into corporate America, and I was the only person who looked like me at the table or the only person in the room. That preparation came from being at a PWI. But the, the confidence to be the only person really came from, I think, an HBCU. Got it, got it. And so was your at your first law firm, your first big girl job, were you um, at a black law firm, a general market law firm? Do you remember? I was at a I was at a white law firm. Um, it was the premier and one of the, the top law firms in D.C. Um, so what was interesting, though, is even though it was definitely a, a, a lily white um, law firm, the managing partner of the D.C. office was a was a black guy. Mm. Um, so you know that was a very interesting dynamic and one of the very few, if not the only, um, predominantly white leading law firms in D.C. Um, that is led by a black managing partner, and there I would probably say throughout the throughout the U.S., um, but definitely in in D.C. Got it. And so one of the things that we talk about all the time is in corporate America, when you're in these jobs, like the importance of mentorship, right? And finding um, uh -huh. mentors who look like you and who can help you kind of navigate some of the the specific challenges that you might have be it as a, you know, black woman, gay man, whatever that may be, how were you able to find mentors or were you able to find mentors to help you um, navigate those first few years in corporate? Yeah, I, you know, there were a lot of peer groups, you know, people who may have been a couple of years ahead of me um, or a couple of years behind me. There's always, a, there's always been a strong contingency of 
of black people wherever I go who kind of help you help you maneuver those things. But people who could be like my actual mentors and and sponsors um, on a consistent basis, I didn't have a lot of that. And so what I found was that I would use particularly black women um, as my virtual mentors. You know, I would watch them, how they interacted in meetings, what they were up to, how they leveraged their career, what boards they were sitting on. I really watched them because they didn't have a lot of time to spend with me, but I, I adopted them as virtual mentors. It's, it's actually, I would say, white men and a few black men who have been my sponsors and who have adopted me and really helped me stand out and move up in my career. Now, I often say when it comes to career success, your career is really in your ability to be successful in your career is based on your ability to, one, get results, and, two, be known for getting results. And mentors and sponsors, you know, by the guidance that they provide you, the direction that they provide you, their ability to um, open doors for you and introduce you to valuable opportunities, they have really helped me stand out. And so while, you know, when it comes to, to, to black folks in corporate America, while they were a good peer group, I really didn't have a good group of folks who were able to kind of push me along. That came from sponsors, and more often than not, they were white male. And then as you've gotten more senior, have you gotten more formalized mentorship, or is it kind of it's worked in the past, it's what works for you, and so that's what you've continued to do? Not from a career perspective. Um, personally, yeah. Uh, in different entrepreneur things that I, entrepreneurial things that I may be doing, but not necessarily in, in corporate America. Um, we may be attending the same fundraisers and sitting at the same tables, and we may, you know, grab a few minutes here and there, but on a consistent – and those, those moments that we share together are great. You know, I get this great little nugget. But long-term, continual stuff, I haven't really been able to find that on a consistent basis. But, again, this idea of virtual mentors, following them, paying attention to what they're doing, that's been really helpful, and it's caused me to grow um, in a lot of ways. Got it. And so you talk about, you know, the virtual mentorship, you know, at these um, the fundraising things that we go to, seeing the women, how they dress, you know, the hair, the way that they speak and conduct themselves and the things that they're involved in. Um, that also comes at... Um, when we talk about people's being their, their authentic self in corporate culture. So how have you married what you've seen the virtual mentors do and live with who you are authentically as it pertains to how you show up in the workplace? Uh, you know, when it comes to showing up authentically and what that looks like, you know, I've learned a lot, yes, networking events and all these types of things, but how people are acting when they've got a seat at the table. So all these, these management meetings, these types of meetings, what are they doing? What are they talking about? How are they conducting themselves? And the reality of it is, is that your organization has a culture to it, and you've got to pay attention to the culture of your organization. And you need to follow that with really few exceptions. I think the best way to, to, to think about this is, you know, hair. Oftentimes people get caught up on, you know, natural hair and what you wear and how and being at, you know, your tone and are you an angry black woman, all these different things. You know, can you be your authentic you and take that into corporate America? And, yes, you can be your authentic you, but it, you can't be so adamant about having self-expression through your hairstyle, through your clothing, through your jewelry. Again, the, the culture of your organization really dictates that, and you need to follow that with few exceptions. Or you need to find a place of employment that's going to allow you to express yourself without penalizing your career growth um, because you really do need to act the part and, and, and be the part until you've earned the right to do things maybe a little bit different, until you've earned the right to rock the boat for the sake of business results but not necessarily rock the boat for the sake of being your authentic self. You show up who you are. Yes, but in the same way that, you know, restaurants have dress codes, you don't go into a white tablecloth dining experience with your flip-flops. You know, there, there is a place and a time to do everything. And so you show up with your authentic self, but you really have to be respectful of the culture of the organization. Yeah, and it's a, you know, I believe in a conversation that I had before, it's if you're going to work somewhere, like, you have to be very clear of what you're signing up for, right? And that, that means that there are certain rules that you have to adhere to in order to get whatever benefit or payoff that you're getting from working for that corporation. It's something to consider, you know, as you think about how you show up. 
Absolutely. There are unwritten rules to your business environment, and there are unwritten rules to the way that you do things and conduct things. You need to learn those things and, and live by those rules. And how do people learn those those unwritten rules, right? Because I know for a lot of people, like my white friends, they have people within the organization that like pull them to the side and say in a loving way, you know, hey, you know, that skirt was a little bit too short, a little inappropriate. Or, hey, when you said this to your boss in a group full of people, that probably wasn't the best move. So if you don't have that internally, how do you learn the unwritten rules? So if you don't have somebody who's willing to um, pull you to the side, then you have to just be observant. And that's why I've learned so much by paying attention to the way that people are handling things in a meeting. Um, I remember I, I used to participate at, at my former, former firm. I was the head of government relations and public relations. And it was during a time where it was a publicly traded company and we were in crisis. And we would, every other month, the C-suite would bring together their team and we would present on different metrics. Well, we were going through a tough time. And so I was presenting on stuff that, you know, it was not always great. And I had to, I started paying attention to the way that people presented things, even if it was a negative thing that they had to say, the way that they couched that and phrased that and termed that, the way that they put solutions with a problem. You know, all that stuff matters, and you pick up on those things by being observant. And so if you're not able to intentionally develop relationships with people who can pull you to the side, then you need to be extra intentional about being observant at the way that people deliver reports, at the way that they talk about, do things, those types of things you need to be super observant about. Um, and that's funny that you mentioned, you know, observing how to present information, bad news, when things are in crisis. As you've gotten more senior, what skills have you had to develop to allow you to be, you know, great at the job that you're doing now? Man, there are so many, so many things. But one thing that I've really had to become better at is being more decisive. Um, you know, when it comes to be, being a, making a decision, obviously you want to make the best decision. And sometimes, dare I say, you know, you want to try to make the perfect decision. And that requires you to, you know, confer with your colleagues, to be thoughtful, to be um, analytical. And that can sometimes lead to analysis paralysis, where you are dragging your time at making the, a good decision, all because you're trying to make the best decision. But what I've learned is that there is a cost to delaying decision-making. There is a cost to professionalism. And I've had to become more comfortable making decisions in ambiguous situations. Um, and, and what I've found is that, and there's so much research, research about successful CEOs, and successful CEOs stand out because they're able to be decisive in their decision-making. They make decisions with speed and conviction. And even when they're making a bad decision, they course correct quickly. And so it's much better to make a bad decision than to make no decision or to make a delayed decision um, because you just you, you need to be better at that. So I've become better at making decisions faster. You know, I now have this simple framework that I use. It's, it's three questions that all of, revolve around return of investment in some way, shape, or form. You know, and that helps me make my decisions faster. I try to make fewer decisions. I realized that I was making decisions when the experience and the information necessary to make that decision lies with somebody else in the organization. So I make fewer decisions now. I've also put in place practices to help me become better at my decision-making. You know, I may use the 10-10-10 approach. Is this decision going to matter 10 days from now, 10 months from now, 10 years from now? And that helps me put that decision in context. So I've had to become much more decisive in my decision-making. Another thing that I've had to do is to learn how to, you know, stand out. We live in a crowded world, and sometimes our jobs can be even more crowded. And I talk a lot about this idea that if you want to be successful in your career, then you need to get results, and you need to stand out from, for those results. And so part of that is being visible to the right people. If I want to stand out, I have to be visible to the right people, not just to my boss and collaborating with my boss and, um, you know, making my boss look good, but with people above my boss. Um, so I've, I've learned how to build a tribe of sponsors, people who can support me, people who um, open doors for me, introduce me to valuable opportunities. I've learned to ask for what I want. I've learned to rock the boat, not just for the sake of rocking the boat, but for the sake of business results. Um, I've learned how to look and speak the part, all of that, and all of that because I'm trying to stand out. So I've gotten better at, again, being more decisive and standing out 
And then also just managing my relationships. I've had to become super skilled at being masterful at managing my relationships so that I can be successful not just personally but so that the business can be successful. And so for someone listening to this who's like, I want to build that tribe of sponsors inside of my company, what's one thing that you could recommend that they do to get that process started? One, identify who are the people that could that are really the decision makers. Um, identify who those people are and identify what's your best, best path to getting access to them. You know, you don't just want to come up and shake hands and say, hey, can you be that da-da-da-da. You first want to try to get around them, get on projects, and maybe your boss is a good person because your sponsor should really be somebody who's, you know, maybe above your boss. They may even be somebody who's in a different department than you. So try to get exposure and access to them because you may be working on a project that impacts them. You just want to kind of get exposure and be around them. So identify who they are, try to get exposure to them, and then third, you kind of ask for something small. You know, I've got this project. Can you help me? Can you, you know, I've thought about this. What do you think about this? Um, sometimes that's easier than just coming straight out and asking, can you be a sponsor? And, again, all the sponsors that I've had are people who have kind of adopted me. Why? Because I was able to stand out for something that I was doing. I was visible in front of them. And they kind of approached me with opportunities. And so identifying and being visible, I think, are, are good things to do as you kind of build up your tribe of sponsors. Got it. And I think a lot of times people are nervous to take on that additional project or take on that, you know, raise their hand for something um, because they're afraid of messing up, right? They don't want to look bad. And so can you think about a time in your career, be it now or, you know, a few years ago where you did make a mistake or uh, you did something in quotes wrong and how you rebounded from that and how that kind of helped or hurt your career? Yeah, so my my best growth has come from mistakes. Um, I have learned the most and grown the most when I made a mistake, and oftentimes I was in positions where I was in over my head. You know, I don't want to take a project that I'm qualified for. I want to take a project that maybe I'm not necessarily qualified for, but it's going to help me grow and develop. Now, obviously, you don't want to fail time and time and time again, but when I've, when I've failed, I've been able to rebound quickly because, one, I own it. You know, I own what, what I, I didn't do great, and I try to course correct and get things right on track. The second thing that I was great at doing is I was finding people to be a part of my, my team, whether they realized it or not, who could help me get this thing together and get it back on track, or maybe even before it got off track, could help me um, make this thing better. So I think owning it and and course correcting it are the biggest things to kind of help help you when you when you've fallen off. Um, but mistakes again have been the the best way that I've grown professionally is making these mistakes and hitting my head and being thrown in the deep end, if you will. Is there one mistake that you can think of that you could share? Oh gosh, there are probably many. Um, <laughs> one one mistake that I made was um, kind of a from a media relations perspective. So there was a public policy issue that I that I was working on, um, and it was with a senator who was a very vocal senator. And I decided that you know, look, the senator is going to take us out. We need to go to battle with him. And so I went to battle in Politico, which is kind of a, a public policy um, outlet, and we went to battle um, via the media, back and forth. Now, that was not the, the, the right thing to do because, obviously, there, there are a lot of issues where facts don't matter. You know, for me, I felt like the, the facts were on our side. You are telling the story about the industry, and the facts don't support you. And so I felt like we battle it out. We take out some ads. We do some op-eds. And it's facts, 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 and facts are going to win the day. Well, big issues oftentimes aren't always won by facts. Sometimes it's, it's won by a good anecdotal story. And so in return, what they were able to do, because this senator had a bigger platform, was able to get a, a, a nice victim, if you will, and stroll them out in a hearing. And it just, it, it, it worked so, so badly. And so that was just a time, you know, like, 
Good God. I lost it. I encouraged my firm to fight it out in the media and to get all these placements, and it, it just it just didn't work. Um, but, you know, if I would have, and it's not even that I didn't have the right people around me, um, but it was just a, it was just a lesson learned. You know, it's it's more than just having facts on your side. You need to you need to have so much more than just the facts on your side and fighting it out in media. So that that's an example of 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 a, of a L and a big L. Yeah, I mean a big L on the public stage, right? So a lot of the things that you do um, end up in somebody's paper or there's some commentary on it. And so I I I'm super impressed that you don't let that stop you from still taking big risks and, you know, and learning and taking on big projects because I know I don't even want to post anything on social media because I don't want the comments. So if that's your day-to-day job, I can imagine the pressure. Ooh, it'll get you. You grow. <laughs> grow, you learn. And I try to keep people who are, and it may not even be my team, external, external consultants. Um, I try to keep them on my side because they are up to date on trends and, they're all, I mean, they, they follow crisis stuff all the time and what different industries are doing and the, the latest company who is under attack. What are they doing and how is that working out? Got it. And so you talk about having people around you. And so we'll talk about kind of two different groups and how you cultivate those relationships and the function that they serve in both your life and your career. So one, your network. Like, how are you intentional about making sure that you have the right people within your network, right, professionally, so that you, you know, depending on what business needs come about, that you have the right or access to the right people? And then your tribe, right? Like, your personal group of people that you keep around you, they may not be in your industry, but when you have gotten beaten up in the press, you can be like, hey, I need to have some wine. Can we, you know, meet for for wine somewhere after work, right? How do you cultivate those two different relationships, groups of people? Yeah, and I don't necessarily know that I cultivate my network or my tribe differently. Um, You know, I think the amount of time and energy that I may put into those between is different, but I think the the skills and what I do is is probably the same. You know, I think at at some point in your career, you have got to intentionally focus on relationship building and deciding where I want to invest my time and energy in so that I have a critical mass of relationships that are going to be beneficial to me. And so I've had to become more intentional when it comes to my network and my tribe of, okay, I've only got but so much time and energy where is it that I need to, to focus on? And I've constantly got to be self-aware and looking at that. You know, what's my goal? What am I trying to accomplish? What am I trying to do, whether it's personally or professionally? And be very intentional about what my goal is and be very intentional about how I'm going to invest my time and energy. I think when I, when I was early in my career, you hear network, 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 you know, all these different things. And I'm trying to be everywhere all the time and you know, be out there passing out cards. I may think that there's some intentionality behind it, and there's not really a lot of intentionality behind it. Now I'm very strategic about how I'm investing my time and my energy. It's like I may have a group of 12, and I'm investing in that group of 12 because I may have, like, weekly check-ins, quarterly check-ins, you know, all because it's a goal that I'm trying to reach. And when I'm talking to them, I'm very intentional about what the goal is, and I'm communicating to them what that intent is and what we're trying to do. Then to take a smaller, there's a group of six that it's more than just kind of this, you know, touch points of communication. These are people that I am really giving of my time and energy in a much deeper way. We are having, you know, we're doing accountability stuff. We're working on projects together. We're doing X, Y, and Z together. And then there's even a limited group of three that gets even more of my time and energy. And I think that that kind of really helped me focus about how I want to invest my time and energy and these very regular assessments about what my goal is and what's my intention so that I can engage for impact with every, with every relationship that I have. I want to engage for impact. You know, why am I doing this? What's the purpose for it? Um, that helps me be very strategic about what it is that I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Got it. And so you talked about, you know, accountability and goals. When it comes to your career, right, this is not your first job. How do you know when it's time for you to move on to the next opportunity? Yeah, I think there are, I guess, three things that I would say to how do you know when it's time. 
Um, the first is this idea of, again, career success depends on your ability to get results and be known for those results. When you are getting results and you're known for those results, all right, it might be time to move on to the next thing. Um, so that would be the first thing I would say. The second thing is, you know, you know it's time to move on when what you're doing just doesn't fit. It's almost like, you know, when you put that dress on in your closet and it's snug, well, when what you're doing is too small for the big things that you've got in, in store, when you want to be more, when you want to have more, when you do more, that's a sign that it may be time to move to the next level or move to the next opportunity. And I think the third thing, along with this idea of are you getting results, are you known for those results, all right, it may be time to do the next thing. When what you're doing is kind of too small for where it is you're trying to go, that's the second mark. But I think the third mark has to do with the season of career that you're in. You know, I think every career kind of has three seasons. The first season is probably like the first seven years where you're going broad. You know, it's a time of learning where you may move across different functions. You may do a little bit of HR or comm or operations or legal. You may move from different industries, financial services and higher education, or move to different companies. This is about learning. Well, when you've kind of done the learning phase the first seven years, then it's time to do the next thing, which is go deeper. You know, that's when you begin to acquire a, a, a depth of industry experience. You start to get a track record of results. You're building your leadership abilities such that maybe you're even running a business unit or a business function. You may do that for five to seven years. Well, then there's this point where maybe you want to be an enterprise leader where you're not just prioritizing and working on and focusing on a business unit, but you're working um, on behalf of the entire organization. You know, you're being strategic about the entire organization, what the organization should do and how the organization should move. I think you know it's time to move when it's like when the season of your career is changing. You're finished going broad. You're finished going deep. Now it's time to go high. And I think those are good indicators that it's time to move on to the next opportunity. Um, and then, so let's say, because you are someone who's managed people for a good portion of your career, let's say the person says, you know, I don't necessarily want to leave my department, but I'm ready to get promoted to the next level within my um, within my current department. So if someone was coming to you um, to discuss promotion or a raise, what things should they have thought about, thought through, um, and be able to present to you in order for you to have that conversation effectively? They need to be able to show a, a track record of success. You know, empirical data. How have you helped the, the department? How have you helped the firm meet its goals? And so oftentimes a lot of that is performance review driven. So what are these performance metrics that you have knocked out of the park? Um, so that's going to be really good to, for, for me to hear and for you to be able to demonstrate. I think the, the second thing is I'm very intentional about, you know, people on my team helping them get to where they want to go. And so I don't want to just develop you for developing you sick because what you can do for my team, I want to help you get to where you're trying to go. And so anytime you can kind of show that, look, this is part of something bigger. This is not just about this particular thing that I'm bringing to the table, but I want to have a much bigger role in X. That's helpful as well um, because it, it shows that you're thinking bigger than just the role that you play as X on the team. So I think that those are good. When you can show how it's helpful for your career development, your professional development, but then also um, empirical data. And then, you know, you always want the person who has, has been standing out. Maybe you're taking on those extra assignments. Maybe you've been doing some professional development opportunities. You know, you're kind of going above and beyond. All of those things matter and help when you're making the case for promotion. Got it. And so uh, maybe it's because of the people that I follow on Instagram or on social or the people that I know, but it seems like in the last, you know, five, three to five years, there's been a lot of exiting of black women from corporate America into entrepreneurship or other things just because it's a feeling of like there's no room for me here in corporate America or I just don't fit in or culturally it doesn't um it just doesn't align with me the culture and all those things so what has kept you in corporate for so long right you're clearly a black woman you've clearly risen through the ranks I'm pretty sure a lot of the, the challenges that you've had are similar to you know, what all of the black women, a lot of black women in corporate have. So what has kept you there for so long? The reality of it is that corporate America pays for my passion. It, it pays for the things, it, it, my entrepreneurial endeavors. 
you know, corporate America comes with good pay, it comes with great benefits, and it comes with development opportunities. And so there may be a time that I, that I jump ship. But right now, you know, it's paid for me to get a master's in counseling. It's paid for me to build a website and, and to start pulling in counseling. So all of these things are side hustles that have absolutely nothing to do with corporate America. But the skills that I've developed in corporate America have made me be much better in my side hustle. I think what I, what I have found, particularly in this age where you see a lot of people kind of hanging their own shingles, is that people jump too quickly. Um, the reality of it is, is that black women is the fastest growing group of people in entrepreneurship. When it, you know, black women are just like blowing this thing up. But when you look at the data, the data also shows that they have the lowest revenue. And I think it's because we are jumping too quickly. You know, we've got to learn how to make money, manage our money, and multiply money. And sometimes that requires a lot of of development to do and, and time to do. And so corporate America has been just a great opportunity for me to fund what I'm passionate about, but for me to develop the, the skills that I need so that when I do decide to jump out, I'm a much better businesswoman because I've, I've been refined through corporate America. Mm. So, and again, I see so many people who make that jump too quickly, and they don't know how to – they haven't done the industry research that they need to know to know about who their audience is and how much they should be charging. And so they're not making the money that they need to be sustainable. They don't know how to manage their money correctly. They don't know about accountants or even before they get to having a good accountant or a good lawyer or a good whoever, they don't even know how to use QuickBooks effectively. They don't know how to multiply their money and have different streams of income and how do you repackage the same content and the same product so that you can do different things with it. You know, we need to spend time doing those things before we jump out. And, yes, corporate America may not appreciate you. Yes, corporate America may not allow you to move up the ranks. But you can use corporate America for your benefit to be refined so that when you do jump out, you have learned so much beyond just that title behind your, behind your name. You've learned how to be a good businesswoman because you've learned from X, Y, and Z who are in operations, who are in legal, who are in HR, who are in marketing. Who, you learn from all these different people. So take that opportunity to build that network while you're in corporate America and save your coins so that you can jump out and do it right. And so as someone who may, you know, I know a lot about your background. You have a passion for um, counseling. You have a passion for love. <laughs> <laughs> which we talk about all the time, right? So what's prevented you from just, like, sitting still? Like, what what keeps you motivated to keep climbing higher if you know that eventually, right, not to say that you will, but it's a possibility that you may jump out? Like, why not just be comfortable, collect a good paycheck? Like, why keep striving within the corporate sector? So I, because I, I love the paycheck and consistent paycheck that I get, um, and so because I enjoy that and because that funds my ability to do what it is that I love to do, I'm okay with it. Uh, and it's a balancing act. You know, I am unhappy at my 8 to 5 job when I'm not doing counseling. But I don't feel like I am getting the most out of counseling that I can possibly get when I'm not being refined by different opportunities that I have in corporate. Or and I feel like I can't just, oh, man, there's this great conference that I think I want to go to, or there's this new thing that I want to invest in for my growth. Well, corporate America, that good old bonus, allows me to, you know, just use five $10,000 to invest in counseling in the way that I want or invest in the resource in the way that I want or invest in this nonprofit who I want to partner with in the way that I want. And so it's a balancing act of having both of those. And I've found that I'm not fulfilled when I'm only doing one. Now, there's going to be a point where corporate America is no longer doing what I wanted to do. And I think that time is probably going to happen, you know, in my mid-40s, where I would just want to focus exclusively on being my own boss. Um, but for right now, both of them are serving a purpose in my life um, and a very needed purpose in my life. Um, so I guess let me ask the question in a different way. So why not just kick it at VP? Like why strive to be an SVP? Why strive to, you know, be an executive director? Like what, because, you know, in your mid forties, you know, that potentially you could no longer be a part of this world. So why not just kick it where you are now, get that good old paycheck and the good old bonus. Like why try to strive for higher if that's not the, you know, like what motivates you to? That's a great question because, you know, I, I have wrestled with that. But what I've, and as you move up, it comes with a sacrifice. 
you know, it, it comes with a sacrifice, and you need to be prepared for that. Every season of your life, as you move up, it's going to require something. So if you're in a season where you just got married or you've got young kids or whatever, moving up is going to come at a sacrifice. You can have it all, but you may not be able to have it all at one time. And for me, moving up does come at a sacrifice. But it, it's a huge benefit because the higher that I've moved up, the different networks that I'm exposed to and the different tables that I'm at and the more refined that I become. If I were to just, you know, just chill at the VP level and do what I'm doing, the skills that I have, I, I would not have if I just stayed at this VP level. I've only become better because I've moved up and I've been exposed to different networks. I've been at different tables and I've had, I've been, you know, I've just done different things and been exposed to different parts of the company by moving up. So there is, there will be a point where the exposure and, and all that I'm learning and the different opportunities that I get is not enough for me, and I'm going to be like, oh, this is the level that I want to be at, and this is where I'm going to stay. But for right now, there's so much more that I can learn and that I can get um, that it's worth it to me. But it comes at a cost. It comes at a sacrifice. And you talk about, you know, the higher you up you go, the different tables that you have seats at. And, you know, there's an article every two minutes about, you know, imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome for women, imposter syndrome for women of color. Um, do you ever have that? And if you do, as you go into these new rooms, how do you get your confidence back? Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think that it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a learning a learning curve. You know, I go in and I, so when I'm at the seat at the table the first time, I spend more time observing and watching than I do everything else. But I always want to make sure that I open my mouth at least once. And that's like a goal of mine. Whenever I'm at the table, open your mouth at least once and, and say something, just so that I'm not taking up space. But I want to observe. Like, I don't want to walk into the room and try to be this, that, and the other, or open my mouth and, you know, it's, it's all the way wrong. And so I spend a lot of time trying to, when I'm new to the table, observing and being intentional about opening my mouth once. But it's a, you know, it, it, it's, it's a learning process. It's definitely a learning process. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. We talk about that all the time. So people are like, I don't want to go in those rooms. I'm going to be the only black person, and they're going to think I'm this and think I'm that. And it's like, you one, you don't know what people are thinking. <laughs> so there's no way to you know to do that. But, yeah, listening more than you speak in the in the beginning um, has been a common uh, theme that has come, come up in my conversations. Um, yeah, and then, you know, once you, once you get at the table, don't be, don't be, you know, trying to not lose your seat. You know, sometimes people get to the table and they're like, man, I don't want to rock the boat too much and then lose my seat at the table so that you're not opening up your mouth. No, you know, look and speak the part. If you're going to be at the table, be at the table and speak as if you belong at the table. Um, don't be so, so conscious about, man, I don't want to lose my seat at the table that you don't even utilize or leverage your seat at the table. So don't be quiet. Be observant in the beginning, but then you better use that, that seat at the table for all it's worth. Um, and then the last question before we get to the lightning round, right? So there are a million articles about, um, you know, imposter syndrome, but there are a million and 3,000 about uh, work-life balance and how important it is for women and all of those things that stress me out because I'm like, how am I doing? Am I doing it right? Am I balanced? Um, so do you feel like you've... Uh, you've somehow achieved some level of balance? And if so, how did you come to that? I do think that I have achieved some level of balance. And um, that is something that I've achieved, you know, throughout my career. When I, when I first entered into a law firm, one of the things that was really striking to me is that um, being a woman in, you know, at the law firm, it's the, it's the partner level, um, it came at a cost. You know, those women were either not spending a lot of time at home or their kids were older. And it, that was just the reality of what I saw. And so I knew that if I wanted to move to a certain level, it was going to require some level of sacrifice. Now that I've kind of done this thing for about 10 years, I have, I have struck a, a balance. Um, and I, I'm at a position where I'm able to kind of create my balance. And I think people... You know, people think that balance is something that is given to you, but you are responsible for getting your own balance. And, yes, you create boundaries for yourself and, 
you know, you may not be able to jump on everything. And you just realize that there's, if there's boundaries that you make that may come at the cost of your growth, you see that. But if you want balance, you are responsible for having your own balance and getting that and maintaining that. And so you can't wait for corporate to give you balance. You've got to strive for it and get that balance on your own. And you've got to accept the fact that, you know, yes, you may want to be a managing director, but the best balance comes at the executive director level. So go with that and stay with that until maybe your season changes and you're able to do it. I think you just you just got to realize that things, things come at a cost as you strive for balance. And maybe corporate isn't for you. Maybe it's, it's, Maybe it's not this corporate, maybe it's another organization, or maybe it's not corporate, maybe it's nonprofit, or maybe it's public, or, you know, everything has its own set of pros and cons to it, so you might have to look into a different environment, but I've learned that I am responsible for getting my own balance, and I'm responsible for owning the fact that maybe that balance may come at a a cost. Hmm. All right, so now we're going to go into our lightning round questions. Don't overthink these. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Um, so looking back over your career, what's one piece of advice that you took that you probably should not have? You know, I don't know that there's one piece of advice that I shouldn't have taken, but one piece of advice that I wish I would have gotten earlier is to build a diverse network. You know, my own network is not enough, and so... I wish somebody would have told me to tap into broader networks and broader information sources. That would have been helpful if I would have started building a broader network earlier. Got it. Um, What's the one career lesson that's taken you the longest to learn but has had the biggest impact on your career? Not to be the angry black woman. Um, You know, I I am in the reality. Cheryl Steinberg says it, or Cheryl Sandberg says it the best. She's like, you know, women are called bossy, men are called leaders, and the reality of it is black women are called angry black women. And I'm very direct because I don't want to waste time. I want to be efficient. But that comes out very aggressively at times. And so I've had to learn how to have a poker face and to not be so direct and maybe soften it because that can be off-putting and it can stunt my career growth. Um, And sometimes it can not get you invited to the table. So I've had to learn how to not be the angry black woman. Has anyone ever called you out on it? I've I've had a black boss who was a male who has, Definitely not in the meeting, but after the meeting was like Nicole, really. Um, so yeah, it, it, but it, it, you know, other people don't know what it is. You know, maybe everybody else don't think of you as the angry black woman. They may think of man, she's bossy, man, she's this, man, she's that. But you know what? It takes one, it takes a black person to call you out on it. And I've appreciated that I've had bosses, a black black male boss who has called me out on that. Um, what's the one book that has had either the biggest impact on your career or that you could read over and over again? So it hasn't been a book, but it's been a person. Um, Michael Hyatt, and you can find him at michaelhyatthyatt.com. So he is the former um, CEO and president of Thompson Nelson Publishing Company. And he does a blog, he does a podcast, he's written books, he's got conferences, um, he has subscription services. And so he's just been, like, tidbits of information. If I want something quick, I'll read a blog or do a podcast. If I, if I want to go deep, I'll do a conference or something. But he's got great leadership skills or leadership um, tidbits and great stuff around entrepreneurship and how to best build your platform and leverage your platform so that you can stand out and be heard. And so he has been the one person who's had the biggest impact on my career, Michael Hyatt. And then the last question. So a lot of the times in our careers, decisions are made about us when we are not in the room. And so for you, what do you hope people are saying about you when you are not in the room? So I hope people are just talking about the type of person that I am, you know, that I was kind. I asked about their family and their new baby and, you know, maybe a parent that they're caring for, um, that I was their biggest cheerleader, helping them get from point A to point B in their career, helping them navigate something um, in their life personally or professionally, I just want to be known and I want people to talk about the type of person that I am and not necessarily for what I can do or what I've accomplished. I think it was Maya Angelou who said, people will forget what you said, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And so I want to be the person that has that people remember for the kind of person that I am at the end of the day. That's so sweet. 
right? Don't you want her to be your counselor and everything else too? Like, <laughs> I don't want them to say that I'm a boss and I killed all my deals. I want them to say that I asked about their baby. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was concerned about their life and what they're trying to do and where they're trying to go. Amazing. So, Nicole, thank you again so much for all of your time and all the gems. I took so many notes while you were talking um, because I also am very direct, but I'm like, I don't care. Like, you're going to get this information straight to you. But, you know, thinking about that in terms of the environment and the, you know, that you work in, right? Some, if you're on Wall Street, it might be a little bit more appropriate, like Wall Street, literally, like in New York versus a bank here in Chicago in the Midwest where the communication styles are different. So, knowing your environments and how to, navigate them um, without feeling like you are becoming a whole different person or living two different lives is something that I think a lot of people are still trying to, to get a handle on. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when it, when you think about it, I'm not direct to be mean. I'm direct because we're trying to be efficient. Like, we're trying to solve a problem. We're trying to get something done. Let's get this together. But it, it, it comes off differently. And you've got to, and if you turn people off, it's hard to get them to rally around you when you need their support for a decision or to effectively implement something. Got it, got it. And so I would say you can find Nicole on social media, but you cannot. Um, so Nicole, <laughs> <laughs> she has no Facebook, no Instagram, no Twitter, no nothing. Um, but I believe she has a LinkedIn page. So feel free to connect with Nicole <laughs> on LinkedIn because literally that's all she has. Um, but Nicole, thank you again for your time. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Washington. I appreciate you taking time to put this forum together um, to help so many women. Thank you, thank you, thank you for finding time and energy to do this and um, not just thinking about it or talking about it, but actually being about business and doing it. Oh. Thank you, thank you for that. People, let's talk about really quickly how this podcast came about. Nicole Elam called me out. So we had our, do you remember this, Nicole? We were sitting somewhere. I should have said this in the beginning. We were at a a dinner that was supposed to be a girlfriend's catch-up, and she was like, hey, watching." A couple of stores and I have been um, talking about it, and you need to get back to what you love. So you have this much time to get this much done and let us know how we can help. And had I not gotten the push from her, I don't think I would have done this. Like, she literally called me out. She said she was direct. She was not playing. She was like, listen, get back to the things that you love, um, and we will support you in however way we can. So, Elam, thank you for pushing me to to actually get this done. Oh, thank you. All right. There we go. Impact, impact. (laughs) So my top three takeaways from Nicole's interview. First, being observant is one of the ways that you can figure out how to navigate corporate America, even if you do not have a mentor. Two, find ways to have corporate fund your passions. And three, if you have entrepreneurship in your future, make sure that you're using your time in corporate to get the skills necessary to successfully run your business. As always, if you'd like to keep the conversation going, join us in our Facebook group at I Choose the Ladder or connect with us on Instagram at I Choose the Ladder. Until next time, thank you for listening.